Thanks, worship team. Thanks, Greg. Good morning. My name is Kevin Hackett. I'm pastor of student ministries here at Grace Point Church. It is such an honor and a privilege to be here gathered this morning to worship our Lord and Savior. It is it is an awesome thing that, that we get to do that we shouldn't take for granted. Um, and I am so grateful that uh, we get to open the Word up this morning together and look at God's truth together. Um, but before we do that, have you ever noticed that how quickly something can go from the greatest to the worst? I'm talking about like songs, dance moves, um, even fitness uh, fads. They can go from greatest to worst really, really, really fast. Um, a song like Happy, I don't, when that first came out, oh yeah, this is great, love this. Now, when I hear that song, not so happy. Uh, what about a flossing as a, a dance move? Fantastic at first, like, like the kids were loving it, uh, and then parents started doing it. And actually, it was still the greatest, so um, we're going to keep that at the, at the greatest. Um, but what about like eight-minute abs? It's quickly eclipsed by seven-minute abs. And then six-minute abs. Greatest became the worst really fast. But that's just stuff. What happens when we do that to ourselves? What happens when we start looking at ourselves as either greatest or worst based on maybe what other people are seeing in us, maybe based on our performance, based on whether we're winning or losing? When I was in college, I rode on a crew team, and so we would uh, be in the midst of training super hard in the, in the spring season, and we would have a race that lasted about six minutes. And in six minutes, the winner or the loser would be decided. And there was one particular race that I will never forget. We were facing Yale. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Ivy Leagues, that kind of um, prestigious, elitist type of institution. Um, but I wanted to prove that, hey, maybe these guys are going to be smarter than us, but they're not going to be faster and stronger than us. And everything, way, everything uh, was uh, caught up in that moment, that moment to prove that we were going to be stronger than Yale. We had trained really well. We were together. Our timing was good. Our pacing was good for the entire week leading up to that race. But then the race started, and our timing was off. We were not rowing together. We were way off of our pace. And pretty soon, the race was over, and we had lost. Now, I remember putting the boat up on the trailer with the crew and standing on the edge of that race course, the edge of the water, bawling, crying my eyes out. Because it was in that moment that I had put everything into, and I still didn't win. I was thinking, hey, this is my opportunity to prove myself. This is our opportunity to prove our school. And I realized I was left feeling completely worthless. The truth is we all want to be valued. We all want to feel like our lives matter, like that what we're doing is significant. 
But the problem is, our value can seem to swing up and down based on how well we do. If we perform well, we can be feeling like we're on the top of the world. If we perform poorly, we can feel like, wow, would anybody even recognize or even stop to think if I wasn't even here? And maybe we're feeling like we're the greatest. Maybe we sealed the deal at work. Maybe um, people are taking notice of us because of an achievement that we, that we recently accomplished. Maybe, um, our, maybe our significant other is speaking highly about us um, in front of other people, and we feel fantastic. And the equation can look something like this. We do well at life, plus people notice, and that equals our stock goes up. We're valuable. But then on the flip side of that, maybe we're feeling like the worst. Maybe we lost. Maybe the deal fell through. Maybe we're not getting recognized at school or at work. Maybe that fitness goal that we had that seemed like such a, re- a reality, such a potential reality, is feeling more like a pipe dream now. And when we get to that point, the equation looks something like this. We do bad at life, plus people don't approve or we don't get noticed, and that equals our stock going down. We're not as valuable. I think it's safe to say that we all deal with making ourselves a little bit anxious or at least concerned about how we do, what we do, and who's watching. And that internal script can sound like, hey, what if? What if I lose? What if they don't like the presentation? What if the deal falls through? What if I can't fix a problem that a customer brings me at work? What if I can't fix that relationship? What if they find out the truth and decide I'm not really a good fit? I think we'd all agree that there's something wrong with the formula, something wrong with the equations, but at the same time, we can recognize that our experience tells us that we're dealing with those equations and formulas, and we're dealing with some of that anxiety, some of that at least concern. It bangs around in our heads and our hearts. And it can greatly influence how we live and how we interact with others. So what do we do? Luckily for us, a guy named Jesus spoke some words a couple thousand years ago addressing uh, this exact issue. And the details... And a details guy named Luke documented these timeless words in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as we open up, just uh, looking at verses 1 to 2, we're immediately aware of a major tension that exists. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
So we have Pharisees, scribes, tax collectors, and sinners all gathering around. Now the picture I get in my head is the sinners and tax collectors pressing in towards Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're there. They're around, but they're not super close. They're still keeping their distance. But it's still, even if they're standing off to the side, it's incredible that these two groups of people in categorically different categories are standing next to each other, are even in the same proximity. The tax collectors were seen as so far gone, they had their own category. So if you have the, let's say you have the the, um, Pharisees and the scribes over here, then you have the sinners over here, they're not doing so great. Then you have the tax collectors way over here. They are standing alone in their own... The sinners are embarrassed of the tax collectors. Okay? So they have their own category. Um, it, is, it is incredible that we have these, these, this, this group of people together, standing together. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, the tax collectors um, were, were way in their own category. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were seen as uh, the keepers of the law. So they were the ones that could quickly uh, determine whether you were in or out, worthy or unworthy. And they'd spent their whole lives being about following the law and making sure that people understood which side of the line they fell on. And they had over 600 laws to do that, to judge people by, to crystallize that line between in and out. So it's not surprising that the religious leaders are grumbling. Audibly. Otherwise, I don't think it would be in here. But they're, they're mumbling, grumbling underneath their breath, but loud enough for people to hear. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The issue of who Jesus is is sharing meals with and who's worthy to be at the table, that tension is heavy in the air. It's a classic tension of who's in, who's out, who's worthy and who's not. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had worked all their life to make sure they had a seat at the table, to make sure they were on the right side. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is welcoming sinners And not just sinners, but tax collectors too. So as you can imagine, Jesus has something to say in response. But he doesn't address the issue directly. Instead, he tells a parable. And it's a parable about sheep. What's cool about this is I can imagine the disciples standing around after hearing Jesus say some crazy stuff that they were kind of tracking with, but not not totally. And he starts off a parable about sheep. I can hear in their minds, oh, thank you, Lord, sheep. Something I know something about. Maybe for once I'll be able to follow this, follow this picture that Jesus is giving us. So they have an advantage over us since most of us, I don't think, are daily around sheep. Some of us maybe. But 
not most of us. So I think it's important, I think it's helpful to know a little bit about, about sheep. Sheep can be not smart. Okay, please don't go too far with the parallel. I, I mean, just bear with me and recognize that, yes, we've all done things and made mistakes that could have eventually and maybe did hurt ourselves and hurt somebody else, potentially. We can all be in that category of being not smart. What I mean, though, about sheep is they tend not to always be uh, aware of what's going on around them. Sometimes it just takes some yummy grass to distract their attention for a little bit. With their heads down, they start munching on the grass, follow that grass, I'm going to go over here, going to go over here, going to go over here, and pretty soon they're super far away from the flock and safety and their shepherd. and they're on their own. Now, the flocking instincts of sheep are really strong, but that doesn't mean they, they don't get separated from the flock. They don't mean to drift. They don't do it intentionally, but with heads down, they're not focused on where they're going, and they end up nibbling their way right into trouble. Another thing about sheep is they can get stuck. Sometimes we get in a point where We've gone to a place where we can't reverse. We can't back up now that we've gotten there. The sheep don't always have the capacity to get themselves out of the trouble they get themselves into. Uh, maybe they took a bad step. Maybe they found themselves stuck in the cleft of a rocky slope. Whatever it is, you can get the picture. Sometimes sheep aren't able to get themselves out of the trouble they get themselves into. Now, that's a little bit about sheep. But while this parable tells us about sheep, I think it has even more to do with the heart of the shepherd. The heart of God towards his people. Listen for that as we get into the parable. We're now looking at the parable itself, verses 3 to 6. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now, you might be thinking, okay, why not stay with the 99 and let the one sheep go? What is the deal? Why not just let that one sheep go and cut your losses? And just a little side note, it wasn't typical for a shepherd to have maybe five to ten sheep. So in our parable that, that this guy has a hundred, says he's not strapped for cash. He is not financially in dire straits. He doesn't really need that one sheep. But for some reason, Jesus assumes 
that this sheep, that this, that this shepherd is going to value his sheep. He makes a couple assumptions. The first assumption by Jesus is that the shepherd values the sheep enough to count them. Are they all here? Are they all present and accounted for? Now, in my family, my wife and I have five kids. And so when we get ready and get geared up to go anyplace, when we're loading up our vehicle, we sometimes have to count. Just to make sure everybody's present and accounted for. So as we load up our 15-passenger van, known as Clifford, we make a count. And if I count four instead of five, I don't say, oh, well, we've got four of them, let's go. No, I say, look, we've got to go find Lincoln. I mean... (laughs) Because we're not going to leave without him. Okay, that makes sense. It's just, that's just a natural thing you would do. That's, that's any good parent. God's heart doesn't change towards us based on whether we showed up to the van on time or not, based on whether, whether we did something extraordinary or not, based on whether well, we failed or succeeded. His value for us stays the exact same simply because were his. And this is what the Pharisees were struggling with. See, religion says, hey, I'm worth more because I do more. But God says, God's heart says, that's revealed in this, in this parable, all people are mine. They are created in my image no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, they have extraordinary value that never changes simply because they're mine. We were made in God's image before we were sinners. We have to keep that in mind. As people made in the image of God, our value doesn't change. Our value doesn't come from what we do or don't do. It means we have the same value whether we're Billy Graham or a prostitute that's operating in the red light district. It's the same value. And that's what the Pharisees were wrestling with. That's what the scribes couldn't couldn't quite get in their minds. How could that be? This doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. Please don't hear me saying that. Of course what we do matters. Working hard, playing hard, trying hard, it all matters. And they can make a lot of things better in our life and in this world. But they won't make us better. Or worse. Our value is set. And that is incredibly freeing if we let it sink in. The second assumption by Jesus is that the good shepherd is going to go after sheep that have wandered off. Even if it's just one. Like if we're on a hike with the family and uh, I make a count and we only have four and one of, uh, one of mine has wandered off, I'm not just going to say, oh, well, four out of five ain't bad. I'm going to go find Lincoln. 
I mean, or one of my other kids. I don't know why I keep going to... Yes, I know why I keep going there. Um, but, but, but no, Jesus seeks until even that one is found. This is not about if that one is found, but when that one is found. It's what good shepherds do. It's what any good parent do. It's what a good business owner would do. If one of your employees gets in trouble, you go out and get them out of trouble. And this is what we're free to do when we see that God's heart towards us and others doesn't change based on what we do. Now, if we know our value is stable because we're his, then we can stop trying to manage our own value. And we can start loving God and others better. If we're not trying to manage our value, if we're not trying to validate ourselves, if we're not trying to um, get somebody to, to praise us, get somebody to notice us, then suddenly we're free to notice others. We're free to serve and love our neighbor as ourself. That's when you can actually join the celebration with somebody else for their win. Instead of being concerned about how that reflects on you, there's a difference between seeing others as threats or opportunities. Oh, hey, if that other guy wins, then my position in the company might go down. Uh, I'm going to be lower on the, the totem pole and the pecking order. And shoot, I, I, can't, I can't have that. Compare that to confidently and freely saying, wow, this is great. I can celebrate with that, that other guy that, that had a significant win. I can celebrate somebody else's win. And probably in the end, it's going to be better for the company and ultimately better for me. But you can't do that if all you're seeing is how you are being seen. If all your attention is looking inward. See, I'm at my worst parenting when I'm feeling low, when I'm feeling unworthy. Because when I'm feeling unworthy, I will reach at anything to validate myself. I will look at my kids' behavior and I will look at them and I will say, oh man, you guys have to behave to validate me. Or I'll subconsciously or unconsciously look at them and set up a system where they have to validate themselves by their behavior. And their worth, in my eyes, swings up and down. Rather than communicating the truth that's inherent in them. Rather than communicating as a loving father, as a, as a loving shepherd would communicate. That, hey, you're mine. It doesn't matter what you do. Come in. Come in for that long embrace. See, Jesus was leveling a serious charge against the Pharisees by highlighting the difference between caring for their law and caring for their people. See, God had charged them to care for their people, their flock. 
but all their attention had been focused towards their law and their rules. And whether you were worthy or unworthy, based on how you measured up. The question for us is, will we, will we follow Jesus into the work that he had to pick up? When he looked at the Pharisees, he said, look guys, you missed the, you missed the boat here a little bit. You missed the opportunity to lead. And now I'm going to step in and I'm going to lead. I'm going to show you what a good shepherd does. And the bigger question is, how's my heart toward the ones that have wandered off or gotten stuck? The Pharisees that let their hearts grow hard towards anybody that didn't fit into their little category. They were completely cold towards anybody that was on the outside. And they had made the line so, so firm that it was hard to get in. So how's your heart toward the ones that have wandered off and gotten stuck? Do you rest easy at night as you consider those who have wandered off from God because, you know, we kind of believe that that one, they made their own choices. That one, they, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of on them. They chose that lifestyle. They chose to walk that way. that one decided to live outside the rules. So, let them go. When we were in Atlanta for the AHA Process Conference to address poverty, we heard the story of a woman who was uh, abused by her husband. And so much so that she felt like her only choice was to leave the home. To leave her home, to leave her life. And she ended up homeless for eight years. And when I heard that story, my heart broke. I was not expecting to be weeping at the AHA Process Conference, but I was. Because it was a picture of someone without any hope. A picture of somebody that had completely been removed from anything that resembled what my life looked like. And as I processed it, I began to think, wow, why isn't that kind of story on my radar more often? I'm sure there are other people in that boat. And I was convicted because it's just easier not to think about that. Are we kept up at night knowing there are people out there that have wandered off, who are really stuck? And would we leave the 99 for them? Okay, what's at stake if we don't get this? If we don't value ourselves as God does, how can we love the ones who are our enemies? Do good to the ones who hate us. Extend hospitality to the ones who can't reciprocate. To give to the ones who can't repay. These practices, they're not possible unless we value ourselves. 
unless we see ourselves as God sees us. If we don't value others as God does, we're going to reinforce and sharpen the line between who's in and who's out. We're not going to restore the integrity and value of human life. We won't revitalize human communities, and we won't put God's grace into practice towards each other. We won't move towards that one. If we do value ourselves as God does, we can live with extraordinary confidence that our value doesn't shift, doesn't go up and down based on what we do. We can understand that failure isn't fatal. We're going to take way more risks if we're not concerned about managing how other people see us, but are concerned with only how God sees us. We're going to step into things that we never would have stepped in before if we were concerned about managing our own value and worth. And it's incredibly freeing. If we don't value others as God does, we can... If we do value others as God does, we can always believe the best of people. We can always look at another human being and see God's image there. No matter what they're caught up in, no matter where they're stuck in life, no matter what choices they've made that have gotten them there. If we do value others as God does, we can take responsibility for being vigilant to vigilantly care for those that we get to be around every day, all through the week, and influence on a regular basis. At home, for me, that might mean noticing when one of my kids is down. That might be being sensitive enough to say, you know what? I know something's up. I'm going to put my agenda aside. I'm going to put my plans aside. Let's, let's talk. Or let's just sit together. And what that does is it creates an environment of safety. And it, it creates an environment that communicates the unconditional love of God. In case there is any uncertainty at Jesus' meaning, he interprets the parable for us in verse 7. It's our last verse. Let's look at that right now real quick. Look at what Jesus says. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. This clarifies for us that Jesus is not focused on how you get saved. He's not looking at, hey, how did the sheep get ultimately back with the flock? How does a sinner get saved? Jesus is looking at the response of the heart. He's basically saying, hey, Uh, but rather the ensuing celebration that follows. When a lost thing of great worth is found, it's cause for a party. That's how we conclude. He's not necessarily focused on how it happens, but that it does happen, and that our response should be, hey, let's celebrate. 
Let's rejoice. Let's have a meal together. Let's party. In our text, the big big question in in the background is, will their hearts be turned toward others as their Heavenly Father's heart is turned towards us or not? What are the Pharisees going to do? And then we extend the question to ourselves, what are we going to do? Will your heart be turned towards others as our Heavenly Father's is turned towards us? I don't know, maybe you're one of the 99. Maybe you're uh, the one that's out on their own. Enjoying green grass, but a little disoriented. Or even worse, totally stuck. Maybe that's you. Maybe you lost a loved one and you lost trust for God at the same time. Maybe you struck out on your own and got a little lost chasing down a dream that, well, it hasn't quite delivered yet. Or maybe you just gave up trying to fit in because all the rules and all the unspokens and all those little things just became too much. Either way, wherever you find yourself, the truth is still the same. God can do without you. but God won't do without you. God has chosen not to do without you. You. Even if you were the one. He sent His Son to bleed and die so that we would know that. So that we could hold on to that. So we could know that our value never rises or falls based on how far we wander or how stuck we get. In my life, I spent years looking for stability and security. I looked at all kinds of places and people and came to the conclusion that maybe I'll just never be secure. Maybe I'll just never get to the place where I feel like I'm safe. Because value, worth, is too shifty. Changed all the time. It was too temporary. When the sun was shining, I felt like I was the greatest. To quote Star Wars, like I could take on the whole empire myself. But when it was raining, I felt like the worst. When would anybody care about my story? They would check out right after, Hi, my name is. You fill in the blank. Unpopular, unattractive, failure, heartbroken, stupid, out of place, unimportant, anxious, etc., etc. But then I realized my value doesn't come from me. But from a heavenly father who's turned his heart towards me and gone to incredible lengths to bring me home. Imagine if you lived like you knew your value didn't change based on what you did. That your value didn't change based on anything. 
What if you live free from the constant need to validate or prove your worth? And I, I believe you could actually be set free to do the most important work there is. To do the most significant work that exists on this planet. You could love your neighbor as yourself. Caring for others and pointing them back to the one that tells us our true worth. Now, to love like that, it doesn't come naturally. And at times, it's going to seem unfair. And it might be mean moving towards somebody that's made horrible, horrible life decisions when you've made good ones. It might mean pulling up the chair to the banquet table with some people that you thought would never be there or should never be there. But our parable communicates God's heart to us. That we can celebrate even if it's somebody else's party. God's heart to us says that we're worth a search party. And then we're worth the party party that follows. And it's a heavenly party. And we're worth that simply because we're his. Neither of those parties have to wait. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for coming after us. Lord, thank you for valuing us enough to leave the 99 to come and find us. Lord, thank you for your faithful followers, your your disciples that took the time to write down these, uh, these words that you spoke thousands of years ago so that we could hear them like they're brand new this morning. So that we could grab onto the truth, we could grab onto those things that um, you are speaking to us to ensure us of our great value in, our, in your eyes. That, Lord, we could know you better and that we could know ourselves better because of the way that you spoke and the way that you lived, ultimately the way that you died for us, rose again, and now intercede for us on our behalf because you love us and because your heart is constantly turning towards us. Lord God, hit us with that reality this morning. That there is nothing we can do to make you love us more or less. Lord, help us to see you as a heavenly Father who stands with open arms inviting us back in for a long embrace, no matter where we're coming from, no matter what we've done. Lord, thank you for valuing us in that way. In Jesus' name.